Hi, Vet Girl here today with Dr. Jessica Quimby, who's a board-certified internist and associate professor at the Department of Veterinary Clinical Sciences at the Ohio State University Veterinary Medical Center. Dr. Quimby, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Absolutely. So I wanted to ask you a couple of questions regarding mirtazapine. I know you've done some research in this area and we use it quite a bit at the veterinary specialty hospital that I work at. First of all, what exactly is mirtazapine and where do you see its use being most vital in the field of veterinary medicine? Yes, great question. I, I think that mirtazapine is definitely a drug that we're using more and more, particularly in feline medicine, and it's it's really been beneficial for us. So I can give you a little bit of the background history, if you will, in terms of how it, it got into veterinary medicine in the first place. Um, it's actually a, it started as a human antidepressant um, medication. And so it's a tetracyclic antidepressant. But the thing that is quite unusual about it. It was actually used for cancer chemotherapy patients on the human side because it was discovered to have appetite-stimulating properties and anti-nausea effects. And so those are the things that we saw potentially as being quite beneficial in our veterinary patients, and it became more commonly used in veterinary medicine. So some of our initial studies with oral mirtazapine that were funded by Win Feline Foundation, these led us to have a better idea of what the pharmacokinetics and the pharmacodynamics of, of the drug were in cats, and to determine that, in fact, it was a pretty potent appetite stimulant, and that um, we do also see some antiemetic properties to the drug. It, it actually works at the 5-HT3 receptor, similar to drugs like ondansetron or dilacetron. Excellent. So I've been using mirtazapine typically at a quarter of a tablet, a 15 milligram tablet every 24 to 72 hours. And honestly, I had always been doing it every 72 hours until I heard you lecture on the use in veterinary medicine in at a more frequent dosing interval. I was wondering if you could tell me what you found in terms of the pharmacokinetics and how often can we really use this in cats? That's a really important point because when this medication first came over onto um, the veterinary side from the human side, the dose that I think everybody got from VIN basically was that 3.75 milligrams every 72 hours. And honestly, that dose was a guess. It was a dose extrapolation based on an open clinical trial that was done and, and basically the pharmacokinetics in people. And then we started using this medication and we realized, well, gosh, it really seems to work well, but we would get a lot of side effects with a 3.75 milligram dose, and it certainly did not seem to last for 72 hours. And we also then kind of suspected that it had different pharmacokinetics in disease populations like kidney disease or liver disease. So with the help of WIND support, we did initial, those initial PK studies actually showed us that when we looked at side effects, we have um, more side effects with the higher doses. So we typically start off with a, an even lower dose, the, the 1.88 or an eighth of the 15 milligram tablet. Or if you have the 7.5 milligram tablet, then you could use a quarter then again and be easier. But um, we were able actually to show that the half-life of the drug is, is actually much shorter than one um, had thought based on, I guess, the, the guessing, if you will, in terms of, of feline pharmacokinetics. And after we did that initial first study, we were actually able to determine that in young normal cats, you could give that dose, 1.88 milligrams daily without drug accumulation in young normal cats. So that really just kind of 
blew our minds in terms of, you know, we should be giving lower doses more frequently as opposed to higher doses that were uh, associated with more side effects less frequently. And that was a way for us to be able to, I think, more efficiently and more effectively use the medication. So I'm always battling some of the clinicians that I work with when they dose it at every 72 hours. And it's so interesting that you bring it up because I always say veterinary medicine, when you actually look at some of the data that's out there, there may actually be no original research study. We just quote the same dose over and over and it gets passed (laughs) along. So I'm so glad that you were able to do this research study to look at the half-life of it. If you do notice any adverse effects from mirtazapine, when do you see it? Is it with chronic kidney disease? Is it with accidental dosing? Is it with any kind of underlying disease that we need to potentially caution our owners about? Yeah, there there are definitely things to watch out for. And I mean, honestly, we're on our about seventh mirtazapine study at this point in time in, in terms of studying the drug. So we also did look at side effects. We pulled some toxicity um, data from the ASPCA and looked at what the most common side effects are. And I think most people know that that's most typically um, vocalization, uh, talking to their people, if you will, <laughs> and um, hyperactivity. Um, those would be, I think, when we have a, a go-home dose that's a little bit too much. And we very much find, just kind of across the board, that side effects are dose-related. So so even for me, I might prescribe a 1.88-milligram dose or a 2-milligram dose. And if the cat is still too overactive at home or too vocal and the owner reports back, I, I tell people to look for those signs. Some individual cats may need dose titration still. And, and we basically take the dose down to the lowest effective dose to kind of get away from those side effects. But the, the other thing that we saw in our toxicity study was that the other most common reasons for severe toxicity were if owners did not um, read the instructions and they administered an entire 15 milligram or 7.5 milligram tablet, or the third most common thing was actually the 3.75 milligram dose. A number of owners or clinicians would call in with the toxicity at that dose. And only one cat in that study actually was reported to have problems with the 1.88 milligram dose. So that that to in our minds kind of says, you know, let's start off with the lowest known effective dose and then we can change it from there as we might need to with the individual patient. But so there's pretty good evidence that those side effects are dose related. All right. So being that it's hard to dose two milligrams from a 15 milligram tablet, can you tell us about the newest drug out there called Mirataz. That's a transdermal. And, you know, I will say with my own cat, I had two cats. One, I absolutely could not pill. And that's as a veterinary professional, which is very embarrassing. But is a transdermal ointment even an option? Is it well absorbed? I know it is a FDA approved transdermal medication, but just wanted to get some information about whether or not we can effectively dose it at two milligrams per day and what the study ended up finding. Yep, you bet. And that's that really is a very fortunate thing, I think, with this medication is that it is amenable to transdermal um, administration. I think we're quite lucky in that regard. And you're right, we have huge problems, A, measuring 1.88 milligrams and B, pilling the cat. So this is kind of where the interest in other dosing types, formulations came about. So after our toxicity study, we did one of two things. We started actually compounding the drug into 
the the actual dose we wanted in a capsule. So we were no longer sending owners home with entire tablets for safety reasons now. And then we actually started looking at compounded transdermal medications. And so we previously published um, a study confirming that you could get appetite stimulation um, with a compounded transdermal product for mirtazapine. And then Wynn had also recently funded us to look at it in chronic kidney disease cats. And we were able to show that um, there's there was an abstract two years ago at, at ACVM, and we've now just put that in for publication internationally. But at the same time, um, Mirataz was being developed um, as well as um, and now has become FDA approved as a transdermal. So it's really encouraging to me to see from two different directions, um, we arose at the same answer, that this drug is amenable to transdermal administration. And quite frankly, the dose is not really at all that different. And that, that's something that people always say, well, you need a higher dose if you're, you're giving it transdermally. And actually, the evidence suggests that this drug is, is quite good at getting across that way and that we are seeing the same effect. So we showed an appetite effect and Mirataz is approved for weight gain, you know, obviously via appetite effect, but the actual labeling claim is for weight gain. And so I think that that just adds, um, all of that adds to the evidence. And now we have an FDA approved product for this. And, and yes, it's much easier than having to pill the cat, you bet. Now, when it comes to the use of transdermal medications, as a veterinary professional, I've often noticed that when an owner brings their pet in, that the ear is just smeared with some type of oil. They're not wiping it off in between. What do we need to know as veterinary professionals when it comes to applying it? And does the owner have to wear gloves? Do they have to wipe it out in between? Um, what are some things that we need to know about? Yeah, you bet. That, that's very important. And, and first of all, of course, owners should be wearing some type of protection because it is a transdermal medication. But um, I think also this is a good time to bring up the difference in between these compounded, possible compounded products and the availability of an FDA-approved product. Our traditional experience with compounded products has been, and even when we made our own compounded mirtazapine, was that you're you're actually grinding up the tablet, um, which is what you're how you're supposed to appropriately compound things is by taking the FDA-approved product and making it into a compounded product. But that results in a lot of excipient. So you're taking a tablet that is, you know, potentially over 90% excipient and trying to make that into a transdermal gel that you're putting on the ear. And in the years that we were studying those medications, there is a lot of crusty white material that gets left on the ear. And that's not going to be something that's good. And that's probably true with a lot of different transdermal medications. I would also point out that there are only really two transdermal medications that we have good evidence for, and that would be mirtazapine and methimazole. We, we regularly use transdermal methimazole. Um, and when I say, I guess I mean as a compounded gel like this, not a, a pack or something else, or a transmucosal, but something that you're you're putting on the inside of the cat's ear in this way. So we do have to pay attention. I have owners who are literally, they come to me and they have an entire bag of different types of transdermal gels, and they're just, you know, willy-nilly putting them all on the ear together. And that's, that's probably going to affect the efficacy of whichever one of those drugs was actually an effective product. So that is definitely an issue. So what do we typically tell people to do? Well, 
especially with, you know, this FDA-approved product Mirataz being a, a once-daily medication, typically what we do is we tell people to rotate ears, um, and they should be cleaning the ear. So often what I'll tell people to do is when you place the medication on the right ear, you should clean the left ear where you had previously put the medication at that time and clean it gently. Just wipe it with a damp cloth. Don't scrub. You know, their poor little ears can't take excessive cleaning. You don't want to get uh, water down in the ear, etc. But just lightly wiping out any material that you might see accumulating in the ear. Um, and then, then you have a nice clean um, platform to apply your next dose when you need to the next time. The other thing too is that this FDA approved product is it's more of an ointment. It almost reminds me of um, like an eye ointment in a tube. And so it it doesn't leave that crusty whiteness that we had with these other compounded medications. And there was um, an abstract that was put out about within a relatively short period of time, like two hours after administration, you, you can't get a lot of remnant medication off the surface of that ear. So it really is potentially going in and it's not leaving a lot of remnant on the skin, according to that research. But I think it's important to monitor that. And, and as a veterinarian, when those cats are coming in and they've used these products to pay attention to the ears and make sure that the owners are taking care of them. And then also potentially make sure that they're not over irritating them by cleaning them too roughly or the way that they're applying the gel. So watch out for ear irritation. Um, that was reported in the Pivotal study. Honestly, I, I really uncommonly see that. And so it also is related to the way that people are cleaning and applying the gel. Is there any need to shave the cat's ear? No. I, yes, I definitely would not do that. Um, again, I think that would be a source of irritation. Um, usually what we're doing is we're applying it to the hairless portion of the inside of the ear. And the little fronds inside the ear, the hair fronds, might potentially get in the way. But I guess for me, in applying it, I basically am putting that thin strip on my finger and then I'm putting my finger all the way down to the base of the inside of the ear and then kind of just swiping upwards. And I feel like I can pretty easily avoid that little frond of hair on the inside of the ear when I do that. Wonderful. Thank you. So important to make sure that our owners have good compliance but more importantly, that we're educating them and showing them how to do this. Because sometimes I'll notice that the outside of the ear is where the owner's been applying the medication. Oh, so. <laughs> oh dear. Yes. So owners don't always know. Now, in terms of long-term use, how long can we use any type of mirtazapine in some of our chronic kidney failure patients? And what takeaway do you want to leave with us? What dosing interval should we be using with hepatic disease or renal disease? Mm -hmm. Yeah, great question. So um, the majority of the things that we have studied, of course, is for oral um, mirtazapine. So the, the studies that we have done, we've done two now in kidney disease and liver disease did show that we need to have a more extended time frame with how it's administered. But it, that information is not known for the transdermal medication. And so the one, the information that we do have is in the large pivotal study that was performed, all of the cats were getting the drug daily for 14 days. And that did include a large portion of chronic kidney disease cats. And in that study, the chronic kidney disease 
Chimpanzees cats did not have any greater incidence of side effects than the other cats did in the study. That that sub-analysis was done, looking for any possibility that maybe it wasn't a good idea um, for them to get it daily. So I think that given that pharmacodynamic information, that is typically how the drug is currently being administered. For our other forms, when we're doing oral mirtazapine or when we've done the transdermal, because they, they really are different formulations, our experience has been that we should be giving those every other day to cats with kidney disease or liver disease. But again, now we should not be using the transdermal compounded formulations anymore now that there is an FDA-approved um, one available. And really the main reason for that is that we found such inconsistency in those products that it's just not, you know, with the excipient. And then when we did some drug testing on some of the commercially available products, um, they're really just not very dependable products in terms of their drug concentration. And, and honestly, it's, it's basically illegal to now compound those um, when you have an FDA-approved product available. Great point. Thank you so much for bringing that up. I think we as veterinary professionals sometimes forget about that. Now, I am going to ask you one more question because I know veterinarians are going to ask me about this. Can you use other appetite stimulants in cats in conjunction with mirtazapine? In other words, can you use extra label entice in a cat on top of mirtazapine. I know the safety studies of both drugs probably weren't looked at together, but do you have any input on this? Right. I mean, of course, it's all extra label. <laughs> but uh, what what have we done? Or I think what's, what would I be concerned about safety-wise is a great question. One, the first comment I would make would be the the other appetite stimulant out there would be ciproheptadine, right? If that's something that some practitioners um, are using, ciproheptadine would actually be an antidote for mirtazapine. It's used for treating mirtazapine toxicity. So giving those two things together potentially would actually negate the clinical benefits. So so that I would not do. It would be one or the other. And as as for entice. Um, you know, if if there are practitioners that are using it off-label, I personally don't see any reason why it can't be given with mirtazapine. Um, I think there's even possibly, based on the literature, a possibility that they, they could be synergistic. If you're looking at rodent, I guess, appetite regulation, uh, those two things together. But as far as I know, there would not be any reason that the drugs themselves would interact in a, in a negative way. In terms of answering your question about the length of time that we use mirtazapine, I can honestly say for all of the forms available, uh, we absolutely use it chronically in our chronically ill patients. I, I have certainly had cats that were on mirtazapine for years as we're managing their chronic kidney disease. And especially if owners are not willing to do a feeding tube and we want to maintain their appetite the best that we can, we certainly, and I, we certainly do that and I certainly feel comfortable with it. Wonderful. I do think it's important since we're talking about appetite stimulants that if the patient is that cachectic, it's worth talking to the pet owner about potential esophagostomy tubes if that patient truly has such a low body condition score. Any other important tidbits that you think you want to leave with us? I think just along the lines of what you just mentioned, 
the whole concept of nutritional management of feline diseases, and of course, especially for me, chronic kidney disease, and just thinking about making sure that the patients are actually eating their caloric requirement, that they're not losing weight, and that they are maintaining muscle mass. And your point is a great one because I don't want to wait until that cat is a cachectic mess before I intervene. I'm typically prescribing appetite stimulants earlier in the course of the disease when we first notice them developing a picky appetite and trying to head off weight loss and head off muscle mass loss as opposed to waiting until the point where we absolutely have no way forward except for a feeding tube because um, we just, you know, it's, it'll be such an uphill struggle. So that's a huge point. And I would just, again, I would recommend that people are really thinking about nutrition in their feline patients and that this is a great way to address it um, and to be proactive about that. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I think this is going to be pivotal in how we end up treating some of our older geriatric feline patients, especially as they have cancer cachexia or they have underlying chronic renal disease. Dr. Quimby, thank you so much again. And a huge shout out again to Win Feline Foundation for supporting this podcast and your research. Yes. Thank you so much. 